This episode is brought to you by HP Instant Ink. No one is reading your mind, but HP Instant Ink knows when your printer is running low and sends new cartridges before you run out. So you never have to think about ink. For details, visit hp.com slash instant ink Spotify. Conditions apply. This is going to be hard. Jeff and Control Robinson passed away suddenly this last weekend, and our world is infinitely worse for it. If you knew Jeff, if you were close to him, if you got to spend time with him, we are so, so sorry for your loss. Jeff had an immediate impact on the people around him. He was comedy gold. He was fiercely loyal, and most importantly, he was devastatingly honest. Jeff Robinson was an absolute force of nature. He was a foundation on which a multitude of communities were built. There have been numerous tributes to him online already, and there will be more to come, because he had such a powerful personality and touched so many lives. Like Reese said in his tribute article on Frontline Gaming, Jeff really lived his life. So please, if you're listening to this, go out and live yours. If you want to support Jeff's family, they have asked that you donate to the SoCal Bulldog Rescue Society. And if you have a story about Jeff, or just want to talk about what Jeff meant to you, we're asking anyone and everyone that would like to, to record their thoughts and send them to us either online via Facebook or via email at peter.colosimo at gmail.com. We will compile the sound bites as a memorial to a man that really was larger than life. Jeff, if you're listening, these two tryhards are dedicating this episode to you. Like true Canadians, we apologize if the wit comes a little slower this episode. Rest well, buddy. Everyone misses you. Presents 40K Stat Center with your hosts, Val Heffelfinger and the Falcon. Everything is opposite land and the upside down under where winter is in July as we touch base with Wintercon. The 416 and the 905 touch tips in the T dot for TGX. We couldn't avert our eyes when the Show Me State showed off their showmanship at the Show Me Showdown. Sit back, relax, and hope your Gellerfield holds. It's the battle on the warp. You may take our lands, but you'll never take our freedom as the Caledonian Revolution rolls through Stockport. They came from the land of the ice and snow, from the Midnight Sun GT, where the hot springs flow. And we take a look at the Central Valley Showdown, where nothing important happened. And though these summer days, they're drifting away, we'll still have that Summer Hall GT. Hello, Peter. As that very oppressively long introduction of puns and humor might attest to, it was a devastatingly busy weekend of Warhammer. Five majors, three GTs, and one event that just barely missed cutting the mustard. Thank God! Oh, my Lord, I was so happy that they only had 26 people actually play a game of Warhammer. I've never rooted against someone else's success <laughs> before like that. So hard. We're going to do our best uh, today to do each event justice, but we can't make any uh, any promises as we do have to go to bed eventually. And Val needs at least six hours of sleep or he just can't operate. Six hours on recording night? 
That's a luxury. Come on. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I have not been getting six hours. Speaking of which, the show is entirely unsustainable. And um... oh, we're a hundred percent boned if this keeps up. Oh yeah, we're fucked. Man, this this summer has been crazy. Uh, week after week, uh, people are pumping out six to eight events, uh, major or GT status. Um, in the weeks we don't have them, we have something like ATC, where 500 players decide to get together and and bump uglies. It's just, it's absolutely insane. I'm really, really thankful that we've started up the 40K Correspondence Group because they've already shown themselves to be a pretty big help. Yeah, absolutely, and uh, I've personally given them very little to work with, and they have uh, stepped up to just offer help without uh, being asked, which is fantastic. So yeah, if you guys are out there able to help, hey, I'm just going to throw this out there. Anyone in the Pacific time zone who really likes editing podcasts in 40K, let me know. Or hey, if you just want to help write a couple of scripts up about uh, events that maybe you know about or attended, perhaps you know a little better where to throw that shade about uh, that really crappy town where an event was held. Anything you can do is always a big help so that we're not up until three or four in the morning trying to figure out how to make a podcast work. There's only so many insults we can make about corn and Nebraska. Yeah. GTs happen in very unusual places. So I suppose we are... Uh, beating around uh, the bush a little bit. There's a lot of meat on this bone. Uh, anything uh, on the plug train this week? Well, um, I would like to plug a, an event that's coming up next weekend. They're kind of on the, the verge of a GT. As far as I understand, they do have 30 people registered, but you know how that is. Um, it's the Gorks Grand Tournament happening in Halifax, Nova Scotia. The city of my birth. That's right. This that is the area in which the falcon, uh, you know, broke out of his egg and uh, flew so gracefully to land where he is today. Um, I hear they've put they've put together quite an event. Uh, they've spent a ton of money and time getting terrain and tables together, and I would really like to see that hit, uh, like hit and maintain GT status. You just reminded me of one of the number one most requested things for the show and that's a piercing falcon uh cry as the intro ends so we've really got to get that added because it has the people people are demanding it at this point i i don't understand but i will do my best folks um to be honest every time i've been asked to be on any podcast that's the really the only thing they're interested in is my falcon impressions so i guess i can get it Maybe we should maybe we should just record you actually trying to make a falcon sound and that'll be it because you know we don't need to rely on expensive sound effects for everything. Uh, it's true, and I mean we can only pay Keith so much money. Well, Keith, but the man sounds like he 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 really needs hoagie money. Uh, so <laughs> we got to keep him flush. Capital City bloodbath, of course, in August. Peter and I are jet setting over there, flying in for the weekend, doing the stream with the Honest War Gamer Rob Symes. It's pretty cool. We'll be on the talking box, talking Warhammer. I'm pretty sure that's August 23, 24, 25. Something like that. Who really cares? We're going to be there. It's going to be awesome. If you haven't already bought a ticket, go look it up. Buy one. Uh, TJ Lanigan's going to be there. Uh, Jim Vessel. Uh, I hear there's a lot of big names showing up from uh, the east coast of the United States to plow their trade. Um, if you're into AOS or any of those other weird hobby games that, uh, uh, you know, uh, lesser beings play, by all means, I believe basically everything is represented. And um, it's going to be a really, really good time. Um, 
I'm not sure what exactly I'm going to be doing in the commentator's booth. The Val seems to think I make a good color man. I I think that um, I'm just too handsome a face for radio. So we'll have to see. Get that beard trim, pal. Oh yeah, that's uh, that's up on the docket here as soon as I get back to my hometown in Alberta. Spruce up the mushroom cut. <laughs> get get that get that beard nice and. You know, like uh, Joey Fatone from the Backstreet Boys. Just mm. nice, clean lines. It's going to be good. That is definitely a person that I look up to. Absolutely. Who wouldn't? All right. Let's hit a little bumper here. Tournament news is made possible by bestcoastpairings.com. Download the BCPTO app to organize events for just about any tabletop game system. Download the player app to easily find and participate in events from around the world. Around the world. Subscribe to BCP for as little as $5 a month to support the team and unlock additional features available for iOS and Android. Bestcoastpairings.com. Competitive events. Easier. Toronto, Ontario, Canada. The land of my birth. Mm. Forgettable New York. <laughs> yeah, maybe once upon a time it was forgettable New York when our best rapper was Shaq Claire. But these days we've got Drake. We used to have, I don't even remember his name anymore. LeBron James? Kenyon uh, Martin? Chris Bosch? I don't know. Some guy is tall. We won a championship because of him. Toronto is the real deal. And what would represent being a big deal city a big boy place with big boy pants than a big boy major ITC event. That's right. The Tabletop Gaming Expo took place last weekend, and yours truly, Val Heffelfinger, stepped into the arena, this time not as a terrified Christian being fed to lions, but instead as the tournament organizer himself. And uh, I think I put on quite the event, Mr. Colosimo. Well, I mean, I I can't say that I disagree. Uh, you definitely had the big names. I mean, Mr. T.J. Lanigan himself showed up, uh, cuffs and all. Jim Vessel, although I don't know if he made it through the second day. It sounds like he had a rough time the night, uh, the first night. Steve Pamperine was there. I mean, there were a lot of big names from the Warhammer community that made their way into that hallowed hall. Um, what hallowed hall was it again, Val? Sandman's signature. Airport West, a shining tower into the sky, approximately 11 stories in a second floor ballroom, perhaps convention hall, long and narrow. It wasn't the most spacious of places, but to be honest with you, in these parts, like a lot of big cities, we were so happy to have it. And I should also take this moment to really, really shout out something. I said I was a tournament organizer, but in this organization, TGX, uh, the actual fledging maybe someday con, um, is the guys who are running that are actually the ones doing the hard work. They're, uh, that's uh, Lionel and, and Fab and Scott. Uh, those guys all actually worked out the location. They worked out the logistics, most of the tables. They did a lot of the setup and the breakdown. They were running around, dealing with the venue itself. My job was almost strictly uh, dealing with the tournament itself. So the TGX guys started this about three years ago because there really wasn't a big... A big event of any kind, big tournament for War Machine, at the time AOS, uh, 40K. So those guys were the the ones with the vision, and I've enthusiastically supported them in all my years participating. And each year we uh, we we wanted to start with a GT, 
but we uh, we fell a bit short on the on our first try. We actually had twenty six players last year. I was hoping we could just jump straight to major. We got to a healthy GT, and this year we we got up to I think it was about seventy players confirmed. Two drops before we started, so sixty eight players started the event, which was uh, pretty pleasing for me. Yeah, for sure. That's actually an amazing conversion rate. Um, at 68 players out of 70, ge- generally you lose about 10 to 15% of your registrants. So that's that's really good news. I think what made the difference on that was making people upload their lists to BCP. We set it up for a week before. Uh, unlike some other tournaments this weekend, we let the Chaos Codex happen because YOLO. And yeah, why not? Why not? Who cares? It's toys. So, you know, I, I, but having people upload their lists made me find out essentially who was going to put up or shut up. Um, we had two drops and they were very, very legitimate drops. You know, who did drop before that? I was able to then pressure a bunch of people into coming. Uh, Eric Scrivens drove like eight hours uh, on a whim. I think he bought his ticket on Wednesday or Thursday when he heard we were starting to lose some people. So, yeah, it, it was really, really good. I highly, highly recommend, guys. Get those lists into BCP early. It's kind of like an RSVP. Um, did you guys do any streaming? There's a lot of good footage here. We had a great streaming table. Uh, Scarry from Scardcast, as I said. <laughs> he's probably got all the VODs up on YouTube, or we'll start porting them over to YouTube, or maybe he's keeping them for his Patreons. I'm not even sure. He was a hero. He was on stream probably you know, at least 12 hours on the first day, and then probably another six hours on the second day. So it was just a phenomenal tour de force, and there's some great games on there, uh, especially the, the the top table. The final matchup looked quite good. I, I still haven't had a chance to watch it, though. Well, I did manage to catch a couple games myself, and uh, yeah, I was thoroughly impressed. Scarry did a fantastic job. Um, if you haven't had the chance, people, I really do recommend you check out uh, the Scardcast uh, channel on Twitch. He doesn't only just do uh, these little... Um, uh, commentating gigs he's mostly known for putting out some pretty excellent bat reps and discussions on you know drew Curry play and uh he has a pretty decent painting channel on the go too so the weekend was not without uh its hiccups actually the first day itself went completely fine uh and actually went entirely fine really until i'd say kind of the the last few minutes um jim vessel was uh playing a, a, a local guy from the area named dylan who actually went on to to uh to beat jim in that game and uh i found out that maybe things were getting a little chippy a little heated between the two of them because uh, the game wasn't over yet and it had already been about four minutes since i'd call round time and so i approached the table and i found that jim had 10 minutes remaining on his clock dylan had zero and I, I'm not assigning any blame for that on either player. Um, really, my opinion is here that there's a couple things that could have happened there, which would have been either the clock wasn't set up correctly, which is possible, but doubtful. But more likely to me, they were pausing the clock. And guys, just so you know, pausing the clock does you no favors, doesn't get you extra time. Uh, just means that time isn't allocated. Um, so, you know, if your opponent is pausing the clock a lot to ask a question or whatever, they should probably be running that on their time. That's uh, that's basically how it is. If an opponent is asking a lot of questions, th- those those questions should be on their own time. This was a chaos versus chaos matchup as well. So uh, I'm not sure where a lot of the, the chippiness was coming from. It was the fourth uh, game of the of the day. And uh, so maybe it was just two guys pretty tired with a really grindy mirror matchup. But at any rate, there wasn't much I could do by then. And I think this is the second lesson as a as a now officially a major to speaking 
if you're having a bad time or even if you're just, you know, not jiving with your opponent and things are getting rough. And these guys were, by the way, they're not like shouting at each other or anything. It's just, you know, an uncomfortable game, I think, is what it looked like to me. Um, talk, just come grab me. I would have been happy to be there standing the whole time. And uh, and unfortunately, I found out when it was way too late. Jim narrowly lost by one point. I watched them as they edited it up and uh, proceeded to have a good time anyway. And did and didn't <laughs> didn't quite make it back for the next day. Uh, luckily, he did because that's where his army was. And uh, so I got to hang out with one of the prettiest armies in 40K at the uh, at the score table at the front of the room. But uh, yeah, that was that was Jim's Vessels tournament. He had a, a great run up until then. After that game, Dylan actually went right into another mirror uh, versus TJ. And yeah, actually, why don't we uh, why don't we let TJ TJ share a couple of his thoughts about about TGX and and uh, what he was thinking about coming into it. All right. So going into the tournament, uh, realizing you know who was going to be there, what kind of meta we were looking at, uh, I knew it was going to be a really difficult weekend. You know, you've got. Uh, Tons of ETC uh, Canada members going. You've got a, uh, we had a couple of competitive players from the, uh, the U.S. going, myself included. And uh, Jim Vessel was going to be there as well. He's number one in ITC right now. So I knew it was going to be a super, super tough weekend. So I was definitely excited for the challenge. Uh, people I had my eye out for, um, obviously me and Jim have played against each other a couple of times. So he's definitely somebody that I... Uh, look out for, look for his new list. We're playing the same army, the same faction. So any kind of information I can kind of gleam off of him or uh, look at what's working well for him, maybe incorporate it into my list is definitely something I was looking out for. Um, I was told when I got there that uh, Devin actually built his, um, some of a portion of his list around beating basically plague bears in general. So that was something I was really, uh, I had my eye off for as well. Uh, and then Chris Haynes, um, captain of uh, Team Canada for ETC, was someone else who basically said that he was very interested to play and he definitely had a list that he thought was going to be capable of beating mine. So that was someone else to look out for as well. So it appears that TJ Lanigan doesn't listen to this show despite being on every other episode. Is this a shock to you? Um, I think so. You know, I... I was starting to, I was starting to, you know, how, frick, let's try that again. I think so. You know, I was, I was really starting to look up to TJ. I began to think that maybe he was going to get that Canadian citizenship and become one of us. But, um, yeah, it's quite obvious that he doesn't care. The reason I'm saying that, of course, everyone, if you haven't listened, uh, the evolution of of Devin's list, which we'll get into, has sort of been told on this very show, and he had called out the fact that he had switched to the list that he brought to TGX uh, specifically to deal with Chaos Hordes, uh, well, Chaos Plague Bearers with the characters and the such behind it. Um, so, yeah, TJ, come on, gotta be looking out for that. Come on, guy. Come on, guy. Don't just listen to the episodes you're on. I know that's what's going on here. Why don't we, uh, we hear what he did to prepare a little bit I'm sure he chatted with Jim about, you know, the, how that game went down at dinner. Was he preparing for maybe a chippy, challenging game uh, or even just, you know, a tough opponent? Let's see what TJ had to say about preparing for uh, what was going to be in round five. I played Dylan in the morning. Uh, he played Jim the round before. Uh, they had a pretty rough uh, finish, unfortunately. Um, so I knew that... Um, 
it was going to be a close game. Uh, mirror matches are never, um, never you know, decided before we begin just because of how chaos, you know, works in general, psychic powers and things like that, and just how dice are. So I knew it was going to be a very close game. I wanted to make sure that I was um, 100% ready for it, so I studied... Basically, made sure it was a very clean game on my side. I studied all of my movements, studied what was positioning. So a lot of times what would happen was he would check something just to see if he was in range or he could kind of sneak past or do something. And before he even picked up the tape measure, he was like, you already measured that. And I was like, yeah. So that was a lot of stuff that I checked myself for. So a couple other things I really wanted to highlight in watching watching that game. One was... TJ didn't come with his backup. You know, he may have heard some things and some grumbling from an incoherently drunk Jim Vessel at the dinner before. I did make sure to be nearby just in case, but you know, I didn't actually need to be. Things progressed very well. He handled himself quite calmly at the table, and I think that's honestly the benefit of playing, you know, round five at the beginning of a day after a good night's sleep versus round four at the end of the day. Uh, really tired from being on your feet. So I was really impressed with 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 how he handled himself. And I also wanted to really call out again a little. <laughs> I'm really enjoying this To soapbox. I get I get how uh, the wire Mueller feels. I don't know why it's so salty. There's so much power up here. It's really great. And the best part of it for me is I don't have to say anything. I can just sit here and listen. No, you know, you really should because I am the To of a major ITC event. I mean, you could learn something here. I'm trying my best. Here's what I'm going to say. But I have seen a lot of people talking about uh, playing with intent. People seem to think that means playing by what you meant to do uh, rather than declared intent, which is what the spirit of the ITC Code of Conduct is really talking about, which is before you do something, you say out loud very clearly what you're going to do. And you pre-measure and you make sure that the move that you're making is both legal and agreed upon by your opponent. And that doesn't mean they have to give you permission to do stuff. That just means that you both agree what happened happened so that later on if something is, you know, bumped or different, well, we've agreed that the intention was that it was there. That doesn't mean that you forgot to move something and you get a freebie every time. That's up to your opponent for sure. But it means that, you know, once you've agreed that a model is where it is, later on, that's where it is. Uh, so I just wanted to cover that. And also, they were very good about about the clock. You know, I made sure that was run very cleanly. They finished right on time because it's a very long grinding game in that matchup. So I was pretty impressed. Um, another thing, though, that didn't go quite so smoothly at the start of round five, I was informed that uh, my beloved friend, my dear friend, Stephen Pamperine, uh, was rocking an illegal list. Slightly overpointed list. How many points? I believe it was uh, 67 points over when everything was said and done. 67, 61, you know, uh, you know a, a not negligible amount. So I had to figure out pretty quickly. Luckily, I had some people there that I could bounce things off of. Uh, ultimately, though, I leaned on the ITC Code of Conduct. I literally sat down and I read uh, the penalties offered uh, for the... The offense in the in the code of conduct, which I thought was pretty cool, that I had that there to lean on, uh, and uh, ultimately, actually, what the recommended recommended foul was. Uh, so the foul, of course, is is being overpointed, but the penalty recommended was to pull the models, which would have been an easy fix for him. Two uh, two smasher guns come out, uh, and then um, a yellow card. Um, however, given that he was three and zero with a draw. Uh, I felt that it w probably wasn't appropriate for him to be in the running to win the event, even if he were to pull the models. 
So uh, I explained to him that I was going to give him the yellow, uh, pull the models, and also give him a round loss uh, in the previous round. He said, um, well, I've, he, he was in the middle of a, a pretty you know, a bad weekend. He missed his flight for uh, good reasons, but nonetheless, he missed his flight. So he actually drove eight hours to be there. Um, and, uh, he, he said at that point that he would, he would drop and, and get a head start on his drive, which I understood. And he, he hit the road. Um, another TO soapbox moment here, guys, I'm a big proponent of tools and I think battle scribe is a really good one. It's uh, a lot of people talk about how it's full of errors and yada, yada. Well, the orc in this case, so that's what Pamps is running. The orcs are you know, on their hundredth or so iteration of points and values, it's going to be accurate, all right? And you're going to see exactly how things are totaled. What happened was he essentially had cut-pasted a list uh, that he had gotten from a friend, tweaked a few things. Actually, it was a list he had given to a friend, got it back, tweaked some things, added some boys, and when he was doing the calculation up on his, uh, on his calculator, which he described, quote, as my version of Battle Scribe, which was damning, um, he then uh, missed the weird boy he was supposed to put in there, and that was actually the 61 points. So that sucks because uh, his weekend kind of went for naught, and uh, you know you want to make sure that your list is accurate. I think the easiest way to do that is battle scribe. Do you disagree? Agree? No, I 100% agree. I, I think uh, we should use the tools available to us, but just make sure that you're always double-checking. There is nothing wrong with slapping your list together in Battlescribe. I always feel like if you're going to be going to a big event, do the extra due diligence. Pull out your codex. You should own one anyway, and and double-check your numbers. Double-check Battlescribe's numbers because, like, like some people say, they do make mistakes. I will argue that they are generally few and far between, um, and they do have a bugs page that – that will list them all out for you if you care to look. Um, but either way, why avoid using such a useful tool is uh, is something that that is, that is kind of beyond me in my opinion. Um, Where Battlescribe will more likely get things wrong is usually in options. So whether or not you can take something or give something exactly. Somewhere. Now that's where things get really gray and complicated. So, I, but as far as points are concerned, that's pretty easy for it to do. And and I, I I'd be shocked. If there are many inaccuracies on points left to be found in Battlescribe, except for, you know, if it's a brand new codex, like the, the Renegade Knight codex, yeah, maybe don't trust that one just yet. Triple, quadruple check it. But uh, anyway, we'll move on. So uh, Pampering also, you know, expressed, has, has reached out and to a couple of his opponents. Um, Dustin, who, uh, who actually wound up finishing in uh, third place by battle points, uh, wound up, he was on the other half of that draw, right? So, you know, he wound up, I, I know... Um, I think it's Mark in the in the in the fourth round. They had a really tight game on on Twitch uh, on the stream. It was really really close. So you know those might you know I don't know it's sixty two points or sixty one points. Maybe it goes the other way. I don't, I know Stephen doesn't feel good about this. He's a really strong player and uh, he's reached out to his opponents about that and and he's definitely taking responsibility for the mistake. And I uh, will genuinely say this man was not cheating, guys. This was a screw up he suffered the penalty and that's what it is it's uh it's like in any sport game whatever uh he uh he he had a, he made a foul and uh there was a penalty assessed for it and he's taking it like a champ so he's not a hero but he did the right thing i think um and then uh going on uh, just back to round five uh devin swan uh the Tau player that we were mentioning earlier he was going up against a, a dear friend tim deatliff's uh, Tim was running some uh, aggressive Eldar uh, flyer list, 
It's pretty cool. Uh, Devon was running his mech Tau list, which includes some Tau flyers, which I've actually never seen the models before. And that one they were describing to each other as uh, in, at, at dinner the night before as sort of a, a go first, win first type scenario, i.e. either side would win. And I, I hate that kind of talk. I always think that's kind of lame. So I asked Devin if, if that really was that way because Devin did wind up with first turn and he did wind up winning. So was it really that binary uh, in his opinion? Would, it, would the shoe have been on the other foot if Tim had gone first? We both knew like this was going to be a whoever goes first probably wins kind of deal. Uh, like I'm not going to go into too much detail over what my first turn was. It's all on stream. Anybody can go watch it. Uh, but yeah, it was it it was really bad, <laughs> like really bad for him. Uh, now to Tim's credit, he did try his best to play his way out of the hole, and he came kind of close, but like there was not a whole lot he could have done. Um, and I know if I had gone second, like, he would have done the exact same thing right back to me. Like, I, um, out of all my other test games against Mac Eldar, I usually lose long strike in two or three of the Hammerheads turn one, and then, like, the, the Skyrays drop their Seekers, they kill a few things, and then that's basically the end of my hitting power, and he just, it will just murder the rest of my army over the course of four turns. So, yeah, um, that really was a go-first thing. There you have it. There's still binary matchups in 40k left. Does that depress you, Peter? It does a little bit, but it is what it is. It's part of the game. There's a lot of long-range shooting out there, and a, and really when you look at the Tau and Eldar uh, armies in particular, a lot of that long-range shooting is extremely fast and needs and a little soft. It really needs that first turn to uh, to do its damage or it's it's done. Um, you see it even with Necrons with the Doomsythe bomb in a lot of matchups. It's a, If that uh, one Doomsythe gets removed turn one, the Necron army has a little bit of a harder time getting uh, getting its way back uh, but regardless um, it is what it is um, i'm really happy to see uh, devin's mech Tau list perform uh, yet again it's a very unique list and it's one that really only he's running at this point so it's it's good to see why don't we go to devin now with his take on the game six experience of course versus tj lanigan who uh, did squeak out that win against uh, that win in the mirror match against Dylan in round five. So here's Devin again. Spoiler: I lost, uh, but only by two points. And like I feel, if a couple of small things had gone my way, even if one of the small things had gone my way, or had there not been a magic box on the table, um, specifically in his deployment zone, like I feel like I would have done a lot better. But like I killed the plague bearers very quickly. Um, I was able to get at the characters a little bit. Didn't do quite as much, but that was, that was kind of a dice thing, but you know, it happens. Um, but no, like, I feel the list did what it was designed to do, and, um, I feel confident in it, and I'm very happy with how it performed. And uh, next time I'll probably get them, so fingers crossed. Next time, I'll probably get him, so fingers crossed. Let's see if TJ thought it was that close. Uh, so in the final matchup, I played Devin, um, and uh, Devin actually built a list that, uh, a portion of the list, um, that was designed to basically counter my list. So that was something that I was not expecting, because uh, I'm very used to playing Mech Tau. I've played it a whole bunch of times, and I usually do pretty well against it, so I wasn't super super worried going into it but then again i had not taken a look at his list so once i took a look at his list 
um, and realized that we were playing, I knew it was going to be a tough game. Uh, I tried to screen him out, but unfortunately, the table we were at, uh, the buildings, he was able to get flyers on top of the buildings. So there's no screening him because I couldn't get Plague Bearers basically on top of the buildings to prevent him from flying up there. So he basically had his way to do that. That was a really tough match. I basically had to play... Um, I would say I had to play my ass off just to just to make sure that I was able to win that game, and it was super super close, two point victories. He seems to agree that it was a close game. That's nice. Always nice to, uh, when you hear about a really close matchup at the top table. Absolutely, and again, available on stream. I will be doubling back to watch it personally, uh, thanks to the uh, great uh, work by. Scary on Scaredcast. No, Scary on Scaredcast. There we go. Uh, it was a great end of the tournament, and really the matchup I was hoping for, given the the buildup that we've been following on this very show. How cool is that? It's amazing. Hey, pretty good. You can't write this stuff, guys. Um, okay, so I think that kind of wraps us up on TGX. Now, obviously, we didn't really touch on the list because we've talked in detail about both lists on this very show. You can go back to previous episodes. Devin would have been in the episode with the basement open. Um, you can also just go to um, 40kstats.com and I have uh, all of these lists uh, showing right there for TGX. That's correct. You can also go there or, I mean, why not get a BCP subscription, right? Hey, why not? Uh, without further ado, though, why don't we get on to some of the other bigger majors from the weekend? Sorry, other people, but this is kind of half my show. Let's get that bump. Tournament news. Hey, big nasty be in RoboEd from Life of the Cover Save Comedy Games Podcast. And you're listening to 40K Stat Center. It's kind of cool, I guess. Australia. And that's where we're going to begin our real journey this week in Canberra, where 80 players huddled together in the bitter Australian winter with only their tank tops, their jeans, and their body odor to keep them warm in that 10 degree Celsius weather. That's 50 for you Americans. Hosted and streamed by Warzone Wargaming, which you can check out at twitch.tv slash Warzone Wargaming. The event was swarming with top talent from down under. We actually managed to get uh, Matt Morisoli, one of the top ITC players from Australia, to uh, give us a little clip on the event. WinCon is held at the Canberra Exhibition Park, which is the same venue that hosts our big end-of-season event called CanCon, which is the Australian sort of equivalent of the LVO. Uh, it's probably the most uh, premium venue that we have for big tabletop conventions like this here in Australia that's regularly used. As with most sort of vanilla ITC tournaments, they run very smoothly. The team at Warzone Wargaming, and in particular Andrew Garrard, who is the, the head TO, did a, a really good job of organising everyone, uh, organising terrain, getting everyone where they needed to be. Uh, from my perspective, it was really good to get the win this year, as I narrowly lost to the eventual winner uh, last year, uh, Chris Wright, who managed to come second this year as well. Translation, I think, I'm paraphrasing here, really nice venue. It was in Canberra, which is the capital of Australia, and he beat the guy who beat him last year. Did I get it? You got it. Matt came out with a big spoiler. 2018's number one player from Down Under, Matt better known as the Plague Hulk, Morisoli, um, is one of the better known players in the ANZ community and was the first player in the ITC to pull out a major win with um, one of these Plague Bearer Thousand Suns lists, actually. You know, if you go back, say, a year when I first started uh, recording, it, it, 
tournament results and talking up lists with Pablo and the crew, I made a big hype about how someday somebody was eventually going to win a tournament with Plague Bearers and Thousand Sons Smite Span behind them. Little did I know that one year later, that would be all that was winning events. <laughs> Tooting your own horn a little bit there. I didn't I, see you, you said earlier that you weren't going to be a good color analyst. That is exactly what the color brings analysis <laughs> do you want me to read this list i mean sure if you would like matt morisali here we go here's his winning list from WinterCon. we have uh in his first attachment it is a uh, chaos demons undivided battalion detachment he had a demon prince uh he had a pox bringer 20 blood letters uh 20 blood letters and 27 plague bearers with the instruments and uh demonic icons and all three not quite but hey Close enough. And the second detachment was also a battalion detachment. And this one, his HQ was a change caster. Um, uh, and uh, then he had a Herald of Slanesh. 20 pink hairs, 10 pairs of brimstone horrors, 20 plague bearers in this detachment. And then finally, riding up behind them, who else but our friends, the Thousand Sons. Araman on a disc. Ooh. Demon Prince of Zinch. Demon Prince of Zinch. 10 cultists, 10 cultists, and 20 Zangors to uh, go and beat some stuff up. He has his refined strategies here. Uh, I think he may not have even known this was an ITC tournament coming into it, because that's usually for ETC. You got it, but I think he talks a little bit about that when he goes over the list himself, if you want to cut to one of them clips. Oh, directly to someone who knows what they're talking about. The list is very similar to a lot of the Chaos lists that are seeing play in the US at the moment. I've been running different variants of this for a little over a year, 18 months now. And the one that I took to Wintercon is the, the one that the Australian team have decided on taking um, as the Chaos list for ETC this year. It's not suited, uh, perfectly suited to ITC missions. It was designed for the ETC, but obviously got the job done on the weekend. The Main strategies of this, this list revolve around the three deep striking combat blobs, so the two squads of 20 bloodletters and the unit of 20 Zangors. Uh, the Zangors will either deep strike in, or they'll deploy uh, on the board, either as a screen, or they'll hide in everyone and use a dark matter crystal uh, to either put pressure on on turn one, or to put pressure on uh, later game against opponents who are uh, who have the deep strikers of their own, when I want to come in and combat those deep striking units. Uh, additionally, it's also got the two units of Plague Bearers um, that will often stagger one deep strike, one out uh, to maintain negative two to hit uh, or hiding outside a line of sight for long periods of time. Uh, I've also got a lot of tech in this list. The army is literally just troops and HQs, uh, and that includes the Quan Lumberjack Prince with the Skull Reaver, the Herald of Slanesh with the Pavane of Slanesh or Symphony of Pain, and the Forbidden Gem. The result is sort of an army that can take the middle of the board really well with its defensive blobs and maintain uh, a big deep striking threat uh, for essentially the entire game with the Zangors being able to deep strike on turn one or as late as turn six and the bloodletters coming in uh, on turn two and three. Ruthless, the Lumberjack Corn Demon Prince. I hope that gets coined. I really do too. It's way better than uh, basically every other name anyone's tried to give it. <laughs> the Lumberjack is great. So uh, before we get into how the event ended, uh, Matt did want to give a brief shout out to his third and fourth round opponents, one for having such a successful first tournament and the other for maybe coming around after what Matt himself described as a pretty salty round of play. I'd like to give a couple of shout outs to two of my opponents. Uh, the first one 
uh, was my fourth round opponent, Jeremy Wales. This was Jeremy's first tournament uh, that he ever played in, and he managed to go four on one, came fifth place overall. Uh, it's a pretty excellent result for someone who's never played a tournament before, so congratulations to Jeremy on that one. The second shout-out is for my third round opponent, who was Justin Locke. Uh, the game got what we would probably call a little bit salty. Um, I measured a deep strike radius on turn three, uh, discussed it, put the models on the table, but didn't actually set them up and went into my psychic phase and cast the power, so I made a bit of an order of operations mistake there. I did ask Justin if I could place the models, and he said that I couldn't. You know, fair play is fair play. I did respond to this with, uh, are you sure that's what you want to do? Are you sure that's how you want the game to go? And he said that it was. Uh, and I sort of uh, demonstrated to him that being a bit of a, a less experienced player than I am, what happens when you want to play the game without the contractive intent. Uh, he made a couple of movement mistakes, which I held him to uh, during the course of the game, including forgetting to fall back with a unit, which locked my Plague Bearers in combat with him for uh, an additional turn. Probably the, the most glorious way to win the game after making a mistake like that was uh, I was holding three of the four objectives. I had a Demon Prince on his fourth one. And in his last turn of the game, he uh, advanced the Squad of Guardsmen up onto that objective with Obsex, so obviously he held it, uh, then charged me with his uh, Commissar. Uh, didn't hit me in base to base, so my Demon Prince uh, heroically intervened into the Squad of Guardsmen that moved up next to him. Uh, swung against the guardsman, killed the entire unit, or the five that were left, uh, and took his obsec unit off the objective. So in the end, Justin didn't hold, a, hold an objective on his last turn, and I managed to win the game 26-25. Uh, he was a, it was a really good sport about it. We had a, a big discussion about it after the game. There's definitely no hard feelings. I look forward to playing him again, but hopefully in a bit more of a relaxed atmosphere than the game that we had. Uh, round three at Winnicom. Matt managed to drop his first four opponents before hitting an absolute wall that is Liam Hackett. Many of you, you have probably heard us talk about Liam before. He's... Uh, My boy! Yeah, your boy. He's come close a few times to winning events and has pulled out a few himself. Um, he loves to play his orcs with uh, a good 20 mega knobs flopping around. And he's kept to the list even after the uh, nerf to the mob up rule. Uh, Matt and Liam know each other very well. They're, I believe, both on the um, uh, Team Australia team for ETC. And uh, this was a matchup that uh, Matt really wasn't looking forward to. I went into game five, uh, resigned to the fact that I was probably going to lose. Um, Liam is also on the Australian ATC team. He's a very, very good player. Uh, and because of this, we've sort of spent a lot of time picking each other's lists apart. Uh, the consensus was that he was probably favoured to uh, take the game out unless a few things went my way. Uh, the stream table was fortunately very heavy on terrain, uh, which definitely uh, helped to swing the game into my favour. I also managed to get the first turn, which was very big. I Dark Matter Crystal the Zangors up in his face. I killed 40 of the 90 Grots and tied a bunch more up and really boxed him into his deployment zone. Uh, the Zangors died. Uh, Liam jumped the Shock Attack Gun up and killed Araman. Uh, I actually took Kingslayer on the Relic Shock Attack Gun so that if he tried to do that, I'd be able to get the three secondary points in retaliation, uh, which I did quite quickly. The Bloodletters and Horrors deep struck in. Uh, the Horrors killed his Engineer unit of Grotz after the Zangors had already killed his first Engineer unit of Grotz. Um, this was a four-point swing because he couldn't score any points for Engineers after I went first. The uh, Bloodletters also killed uh, eight of the ten Mega Nobs and the entire unit of Tank Busters, which was uh, a very big swing in my favor there as well. Um, this essentially left Liam playing with ten Mega Nobs, the Looters, and a bunch of characters against most of my army. I also uh, rolled very, uh, very fortunately two ones in a row 
on a unit of bloodlet is important rather than back over over two different turns. The game really slowed down from this point, uh, became a bit of a grind. Liam sent a unit of Mega Nobs to the other half, the unused half of the board, uh, where they managed to kill my Plague Bearers and my Horrors and take control of that. Uh, he was getting hold more every turn, but I was over in the other corner of the board farming his remaining units of Grots and characters and other small units getting kill more every turn. Uh, managed to run out winner 28-24 um, in what was a, a, a very, very strategic and technical game uh, and one that I really enjoyed playing. Matt wasn't the only undefeated player at, at WinterCon this year. Um, he just was the one that also accrued the most VP over the course of the event. We would be remiss if we didn't mention the other two top performers, Christopher Wright and Kieran Howard. Val, did you want another go at reading a list, or would you like a professional to do this one for you? I'm going to smash it. Give her. Here we go. Christopher Wright's list at WinterCon. He had a battalion detachment of Astra Militarum. The regiment was Cadium. And this is the Emperor's Fist Hand Company coming at you hot. He had a Knight Commander Pask. He had a Tank Commander with a Battle Cannon. And he had a Company Commander. And then he had three units of infantry squads. And then he had three units of heavy weapons support squads with three mortars. Coming after that, he had a Battalion Detachment. This time, though, he throws us a curveball. It's a Regiment of Vestroyans. However, it is also led by a Tank Commander and another tank commander, and a company commander. All these ones have Punisher Gatling cannons, three units of uh, infantry squads, an elite squad, an astropath, an astropath, and a unit of seven Bulgren, three with brute shields, and four with the slab shields. And then finally, he rounded it all out with a spearhead attachment of the Admech uh, under the Stygies 8 banner. Uh, that was led by a tech priest engine seer, and hey, look at this. Our first appearance on the show. Three Scorpius Disintegrators with the Belarus Energy Cannon, three Cognus Heavy Stubbers, Disruptor Missile Launcher, and Broad Spectrum Data Tether. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And spoiler alert, those won't be the last Scorpius Disintegrators that we see tonight. I love those stupid little things. They're just awesome. So why don't you, uh, why don't you show me how it's done with Kieran's list, or do you care? Oh, well, you know what? I do care. Kieran Howard, he ran a Supreme Command Detachment, uh, Slanesh, with three Keepers of Secrets, one Shalaxi Hellbane, and the Contorted Epitome. He then had an Alpha Legion Vanguard Detachment with a Chaos Lord with Jump Pack and Chainsword, as well as the Talisman of Burning Blood and a Thunder Hammer. His elite slots were filled with two Foul Bladespawn and the Tallyman. And finally, he had a Supreme Command Detachment of Alpha Legion with three Lord Discordants, all of them rocking autocannons. All right, that's fairly smooth. I'd have to give you that. When you read a couple hundred lists a day, comes with the trade. Kind of can see what's coming. Although maybe you wouldn't in this list. Three Keepers of Secrets? It's absolutely freaking bonkers. And uh, in talking to a couple um, Chaos players, they were very interested in seeing how uh, Kieran made this list work. Because really, it's just a threat overload. You have those three um, Hellstalkers with the five, essentially, uh, Keepers of Secrets, if you count the Contorted Epitome as one, um, that are rushing up the board in your face, and they can all blend pretty well. The Australian meta reminds me a lot of the West Coast meta. In the United States, in the sense that weird stuff seems to work there. I don't know if they if they've embraced uh, fully enclosed ruins or what it is, but it's it's pretty cool the list that come out of there. And uh, shout out one more time to my pal 
Liam Hackett for rocking those mega knobs. He didn't break a sweat when you couldn't mob up mega knobs. In fact, he claimed he, he didn't even like to do it, mate. So there you go. What a freaking legend. He's a legend. Let's cut to a little bit here on Christopher, because uh, he's no stranger to top tables, and it, it should be no surprise that he shows up in these lists yet again. Uh, recently, he's had success with Deathwatch, Prefac, and a series of Eldar lists post-Fac, uh, winning a couple events and, uh, and having two or three top fours as well. So we asked him why he made the move to this uh, you know, primary guard tank commander list. You sure? We did that? Well, unfortunately, folks, it looks like uh, the clips that were provided by Chris Scott uh, interfered by something in the warp. So we're not really going to be able to provide you the in-depth insight that he was able to give us. Um, while Matt did have some rough matchups on his way to be 5-0, and Chris was not to be outdone. In fact, in his final matchup, he had to go up against Eric Lathuris, a man that had not been defeated in Australian events in cl something close to a year. But luckily for Chris, he did manage to pull it out in uh, what I'm told was quite the nail-biter. Um, slowly but surely picking off Eric's uh, Tyranid list and uh, managing to claim victory there and go undefeated at the event. Uh, lastly, we did try to get some deep insights from Kieran Howard on these Keepers of Secrets. The Eric? Yes, the Eric. The man who won with Grey Knights. The man who won with Eric Lethagoras. Yes, Lethuggerous. <laughs> yes, continue with your actually serious coverage. <laughs> so we tried to get some deep insights from Kieran Howard on how he managed to pull off such a great performance. Um, and his strategic anal analysis really did not disappoint. In fact, I believe um, I'm quoting him word for word when I say, well, I, when I went up against the Tyranids and every other faction, all I did was move my Slanesh demons up and kill them. That's uh, that's deep. And that's all we have for you from uh, WinterCon. So let's hit that bump. Tournament news. Hey, everybody. I'm Paul Murphy from Forge the Narrative, and you're listening to 40K Stat Center. From the belly button of Australia, we travel to Kansas, where we came yet another event closer to crowning a new Lord Commissioner at the Show Me Showdown in Missouri. The showdown attracted 66 players and 11 misguided peeping toms this year for its annual charity event, and T.O. Nathan Martin was happy to supply us with all the details we could ever desire on how it went down. Hey, Nathan Martin here from the Show Me Showdown Grand Tournament. The Show Me Showdown, uh, we are in our second year, and we hit our ITC major status this year. We had 68 players. It was a great event. Um, it's held at uh, Staley High School in Kansas City, Missouri. Uh, we run the event to raise money for Future Business Leaders of America, FBLA, and DECA, the Entrepreneurship Program. These are student organizations, and they help students, uh, you know, go uh, kind of achieve their business uh, aspirations uh, for going into college, things like that. And every year the students need money to attend state and national competitions and international competitions. And the burden is typically on the parents. Uh, you know, the, the school can help some, but, uh, you know, we try to do as much as we can. And this year I'm excited to say that we raised 
uh, around two thousand dollars toward the to these programs, which is amazing. Um, I can't thank the attendees and everyone who watched it on the Twitch stream and donated either online or in person. So thanks very much. Nathan was definitely happy to report that there were almost no code of conduct issues at the event, and that it was, and that was with literally every table from top to bottom being put on a chess clock. Now, I would like to pause here and actually have him share his thoughts on the chess clocks because it's still contentious. We had a lot of chess clocks available at TGX, but not a lot of usage. And I want to see uh, what is what he thought about actually just making everyone dive into them. One pretty unique thing I'd say to our event this year in. Um from a chess clock perspective is that we actually had every single table on a chess clock, even our bottom tables. Chess clocks aren't new, so this isn't you know a big uh, giant news story necessarily, but it is new in that we forced every table for all five games to be on chess clocks, regardless of your standings. So there was a little bit of growing pains, I think, from that. Um, you know, I personally think that the chess clocks are amazing. I think they're very, very valuable to the game. I think that it's probably going to get to be uh, put in, uh, you know, in place as a regular thing at every event. I know that some of the, you know, really huge events, 200 plus person events, it maybe can become a bit cumbersome. But uh, it was positive. We had virtually zero chess clock rules. Um, and, uh, so that was a, that was a big bonus for us. So as can be expected for an event with such a fantastic following, a number of big boys came out to play, including the eventual winners, Matt Darn Tootin Rutt and Cool Ranch Ben Cheerween. Cheerwin? Cheerwine. Cheerwinny. Cheerwine. <laughs> All the big bad lists made showings, including Eldar Flyers, Lord Discordance, and the Triple Caladius. Matt had some great things to say about the event and the TO. The event was fantastic. Very well done. And I was really pleased with uh, all aspects of it, really. Um, one thing I definitely want to point out is the terrain, uh, which had some of the best terrain I had ever seen. Uh, I really appreciated the fact that uh, several tournaments from the Midwest had actually worked together uh, to bring a whole bunch of terrain to the event so that all tables had... Uh, excellent coverage. Um, kind of the big L's that you see at Nova. There were several line of sight blocking things, nice and tall ruins, um, and uh, uh, not really like small hills or anything else like that like you sometimes see at tournaments. Beyond that, the event was also really one well run by a guy named Nathan Martin. Uh, it All the proceeds went to a charity, and the charity was to... Uh, Future Businesses uh, Leaders of America at the high school. So it was for a good cause. Um, it was well organized. We had nice three-hour rounds for each of the uh, for each of the games. And I, I have nothing bad to say about the tournament. The prize support was great. They had tons of door prizes. It was just really well done. I really highly recommend it. Uh, it's one of the three tournaments in the Midwest that actually kind of does a similar sort of volunteer thing. The other ones being Bug Eater, which raises for a debate team, um, proceeds and then iron halo which raises money for uh, a local um kind of anti-drug uh, um kind of uh a religious uh group of kids support group sort of thing like a club two big takeaways from that for me one he really sounds like philip seymour hoffman don't you agree 100 percent. and secondly why aren't we just using every high school gymnasium on the planet 
and just like selling Girl Guide cookies at the same time. We could we could have GTs in every town on everywhere. I mean, you're 100% correct. It's the one thing that I try to push on anybody I'm talking to that's trying to set up their own event is just go to the local high school. They don't know what to do with their gym. This is insane. I can't believe this has never occurred to anyone other than a bunch of people in the Midwest. This is brilliant. Okay. So to get back on topic, uh, Matt did take the road less traveled. He dropped his orcs from that he's been playing you know, since early this year and moved fully behind uh, Gene Steeler Colts, which he first pulled out for the Bug Eater GT. Uh, Val, did you want to take a shot at uh, this list, or do you want me to go at it I'll again? Take another swing at it. We got Matt Root at the Show Me Showdown. Here we go. He was rocking the Gene Stealer Cult Battalion Detachment, uh, Cult of the Forearmed Emperor. It was a spe- specialist detachment, the Deliverance Brood Surge. It was led by an Acolyte Icon Ward and a Primus. He had a well three units of Acolyte Hybrids with four heavy rock saws in each, and make that five. Uh, with uh, four heavy rock stars in each. Uh, in the elite slot, we had a Clamavis, a Kellermorph, and a Nexos. And that was combined with a battalion detachment of Tyranids, Gene Stealer Cults, shocker. It was a mixed detachment. We had a Magus and a Patriarch leading it. Uh, the Magus was Bladed Cog, and the Patriarch was uh, Cult of the Four-Armed Emperor. In the troop section, we had a unit of 20 Acolyte Hybrids with Hand Flamers. Uh, as well as two Brood Brothers infantry squads. Under the fast attack, we had our pals, the Atalan Jackals. Looks to me like there was six of them? Sank. Sank. Five of them with the demo charges. And then finally, we have one last battalion detachment. He hints at this later. It's an Astra Militarum Brood Brother detachment. Uh, two tank commanders leading it with uh, Laz Cannon and Plasma Cannons. Uh, and a term, turret mount, mounted Executioner Plasma Cannon. What? Three troops of infantry, sorry, three infantry squads supporting those guys. Executioner Plasma Cannons. Yeah, it's something you see occasionally, but usually not at the top end of the lists. And just one quick correction for the folks out there. It was four squads of Accolade Hybrids with five rock saws in each. Touche, salesman. So my general strategy for those... um units is that the tank commanders are there essentially to get a kill turn one kill if they live beyond turn one or contribute to something beyond turn one fantastic um that's that's all very helpful sometimes they're not uh the most useful things in the world um but 90 percent of the time they are fantastic uh the rock saws um i i like rock saws and uh, uh, acolytes more than i like aberrants i know uh, other people enjoy the aberrants but i find aberrants to be a liability because they are still easy to kill, they are not objective secured, and they struggle sometimes at killing uh, vehicles, whereas rock saws really don't. And there are more bodies, more bodies which allow you to surround more things, and uh, you can play around with several more tricks by having more bodies. So, as for an MVP of the list, everything... So my general strength. And there are more bodies, more bodies which allow you to surround more things, and uh, you can play around with several more tricks by having more bodies. So that's that was the reason for those uh, for getting the executioners and for getting more Roxaw acolytes over aberrant. As for an MVP of the list, everything in my list uh, kind of has its own um, purpose, and MVP really changes from game to game. If I had to give you a consistent MVP, it would probably be the Acolytes. Uh, I mean, they do most of the heavy lifting almost in every game. Uh, there's not been a single game where I was like, well, I, there's no reason to carry these. 
But Kellen Morph has been amazing. Some games, other games, it's the uh, five-man demo charge, uh, bike squad. Other games, it could be the tank commanders themselves. There's just there's a ton of really useful units in that list that really like to carry their weight. Uh, carry their weight, rather. Philip Seymour Rutt, another big fan of the Rock Saw. For sure. He absolutely loves it. In fact, if you listen closely, you can kind of hear a lot of the same tones that you got out of Stephen Four when uh, he's talked up his uh, Gene Steeler cult list uh, time and time again. Now, Matt had a pretty rough matchup in his final game of Showdown, playing into Scott Thompson's Triple Caladius Telamon Imperium list. Now, Mr. Falcon, you talk a lot of garbage when it comes to reading lists. Why don't you try tangling with this one? For sure. So Scott Thompson, he ran a Adeptus Custodes Spearhead Detachment with Captain General Trajan Valoris, a Contemptor Achilles Dreadnought, a Vexillus Praetor with the Vexilla Magnifica, two Palace Grav Attack uh, uh, tanks, three Caladius Grav tanks with the twin Eliastus Accelerator Cannons, a Telemann Heavy Dreadnought with dual Arachnus Storm Cannons, and a Graia Battalion with two Tech Priest Engine Seers, three units of five Skatari Rangers, correction, uh, two units of six Skatari Rangers, one with a sniper rifle, and one unit of five. And finally, he had an Officio Assassinorum Vanguard Detachment with a Calidus, an Eversor, and a Vindicare. Every single word you just said was extra dumb. And... Uh... <laughs> Why don't we go over to Scott? So the Omaha native was more than happy to let us in on his recipe for success after getting to 4-0. So talking about my list, um, I've ran the Cladis a few times in tournaments, uh, and I've done fairly well, but there are a couple matchups before this current version of the list that it just was, it still wasn't doing enough. Um, offensively, they're great, obviously, um, but they running up against like a Castellan, they can still be killed pretty easily. Um, they're probably a little bit undercosted. I would say somewhere in the neighborhood of ten to twenty points more would probably be fair. Uh, much more than that, and they may be too much. Uh, Telamon is an excellent vehicle for kill, uh, killing anything without an invul, uh, any vehicle without an invul. Um, it's also pretty good against hordes being that this the 12 shots are negative two. the achilles is kind of something no one expected i think um and as far as an mvp with the exception of the game against matt it was probably my mvp because no one knew what it was and for 140 points being able to just deep strike it wherever i want and cause havoc was sort of fun um and also the assassins tended to help out and help me get points in most of the games as well. Um, they aren't super um, killy now because a lot more folks are running vehicle heavy lifts and they don't do much against them. Um, but they can still hide and and get me recon and whatever. Um, but yeah, they were pretty good. But the, the Achilles definitely was the kind of ace in the hole. Everyone knew what everything else did pretty much except for that. So Scott would tell us later that this game that he had against Matt was an interesting one, and in hindsight, he wished he had chosen to go second, as Matt played so craftily, it was hard for him to keep up. Um, let's hear Matt's words on his strategy going into the game, and, and really just about the game itself, because I, I believe he puts it rather succinctly. Over to Philip Seymour Matthew. Scott was uh, uh, 
running the Caladiuses. And Caladiuses are a bit of a rough matchup just because the, the way they can deploy on ruins and the way that they can be minus two to be charged, they are nearly unassaultable. Furthermore, they're really damn hard to kill. Uh, like the tank commander versus Caladius shooting is a, is a joke. Like it's far more efficient to take a Caladius point wise for shooting than it is to take a tank commander. Um, and so trying to do that, uh, you know, it's it's a losing battle. Um, so I don't have a lot of really good shooting options. And they can in sixty inch range, those guys can just pick up anything that they shoot up. The Caladiuses do. So I, ex I expected you know that there would be screens and things I'd have to run into that would be a trouble. Scott gave me a few opportunities, however, by leaving his act, his uh, troops out in the open over near objectives um, and allowing me to try and get up there and surround them and using that. And so essentially my goal going into the game was not to kill any of the Caladiuses because he has to be aggressive and come to me if I want to win the Caladiuses unless I want to make some seriously risky charges. What instead I do want to do is uh, try to win and things I can do. So using things like headhunters forces him to either commit, if he wants to use Elijah's assassins, he gives me headhunters. If he doesn't want to use the headhunter them, then that's fine. They don't have to deal with assassins. Um, engineers allows me to sit back on objectives. I don't have to kill anything to farm points. And then because I'm GSC, uh, using the, um, uh, the ground control secondary is really helpful there too. That was the reason I picked those particular secondaries. My, my goal was, again, not to kill everything Scott had, but to out, basically bleed him of points as best I could. So it, in that sense, it went about as well as I could, uh, but I tried to take those opportunities to gain more points. So if I saw an opportunity to get a kill and hold more objectives, I took it by making charges and moving up to try and grab stuff uh, on objectives and just tying myself up in combat. And from there, it was just slowly picking points as best I could from turn to turn. By bringing out my Acolytes one squad at a time, this allowed me to do it over the course of six hours. I think more so than anything, it was the opportunities to make those charges and send objectives that really kind of put the nail in Scott's coffin, so to speak. I can't deal with his Caladiuses. They're just, they're just too hard to kill. Um, with the way that my army runs. I have you know plenty of anti-tank stuff, but he is really good at ignoring most of it. So by taking apart other pieces of his list, um, that's he, he gave me that opportunity by moving out his acolytes and his engineers forward and that sort of thing. So I, I would say somewhere around turn two, when I saw those opportunities, I took them and started making those charges and tying stuff up was when I felt like the game was really turning around in my favor. But it was basically a game in which every turn I was getting a couple more points than him, and at the end of the game it just ended up with a big differential as a result of that. You heard it here first. Matt Rudd does not care about your clocks, Nathan. Six hours to finish that final match. And not only that, but he absolutely bled a man dry right in front of you, and there was nothing you did about it. Meanwhile, at the other top table of the event, we had Ben Master Chef Sherwin and his Eldari Flyers. Ben has been putting together a long series of top performances in the last few months, and, the, and Show Me Showdown was just another in that lineup. One second. Ben has been putting together a long series of top performances in the last few months, and Show Me Showdown was just another in that lineup. For sure. And what was Ben running? 
He had an air-wing detachment that was ally talk with three Crimson Hunter Exarchs and a Hemlock Wraithfighter. He then had a Cabal of the Blackheart airwing with three Razorwing Jetfighters. And he topped it all off with a ally talk spearhead with a Farseer Skyrunner and three Night Spinners, as well as, wait for it, three Wave Serpents. I mean, that was a pretty easy list to read. Uh, you're, you're right. I mean, there's no nonsense words like you have in a custodies list. And, um, you know, to be fair, this list only makes me want to throw up just a little. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> oh, the sadness. All right. Why don't we uh, kick it over to Ben himself and he can take us through this nightmare blow by blow. Uh, some of the lists I've been playing this season have a Pretty much all I had a lot of tanks in them. I've been Fire Prisms, Night Spinners, Ravagers, Wave Serpents. Uh, but during the Castellan's reign, I really honestly played a lot of Harlequin bikes for that Haywire. But now with the Discordance and the Gladius is roaming around, uh, I've really had a lot of luck with the uh, Eldar Flyers. Uh, with their minus two to hit, you know, minus three to hit with Lightning Fast. Uh, that's generally where I've found a sweet spot with the current meta. You know, it's hard to pick out a unit that really shined above the rest from my list just because in each matchup they all had their their great purposes like wave serpents holding objectives but um i mean if i had to pick one it'd be my farseer but you know doom doom is doom it's one of the greatest psychic powers in the game and if you can get it off it makes my everything just a lot better especially night spinners who need that six to wound to really be you know super effective uh and he didn't die at all during the tournament so anybody who took old school against me was automatically down a point so that was fantastic. But if I had to pick a lame duck, that'd be my Hemlock Wraithfighter. If I just ignore the fact that his shooting was fantastic, which it always is going to be because it auto-hits strength 12, minus 4, 2 damage flat. That's always going to do something. It would be his casting. He got Jinx off twice the entire tournament, and I cast it like 30 times. So I was not happy with that amount of jinx getting off though the one time i really needed it it really came through and that was a pretty big turning point when i got it off turn one against the shadow sword knight list allowing me to honestly just kill the knight outright first turn um putting me at a pretty good spot right away on game five so that was that was huge but the rest of the time he failed off his jinx and it was super irritating because you're like oh well i should get this like half the time and nope not from him Ben is very well known amongst his fellows for having a peculiar basing method on his Eldar Flyers. While we could try to explain it to you, we do feel it's best to let Ben describe the trials and tribulations of using real food for his bases. Now, the Dorito bases are a funny story. So, you know, at LVO and other ITC events, you don't necessarily need to have the Flyer bases based. They can be black. Uh, but this event in particular, which is Bug Eater, which is run by one of my teammates, Tim Royers, uh... I suddenly had a realization on our way there. I'm like, well, I might need these base. Well, this is like midnight. I'm doing this, maybe 1 a.m. And I'm like, hey, Tim, I know you're probably still setting up the event. You know, do I need my flyer bases? He goes, yeah, man, I'm sorry. But yeah, you do. You need something. So I was like, oh, man, I'm screwed here. So I got to figure something out. I can't play with my flyers. Cause I know Tim, he's a hard he, he's a hard judge. And he'll pull my models. I know that for sure. At least one of his judges will. Now I'm super tired. I'm looking for an easy way out because I just want to get it done and get it out. And I'm like, okay, well, we'll go to Walmart. That's the only thing open. And I'll get some like glitter Elmer's glue and we'll just call it a day. 
Well, uh, as we walked in, there was a big wall of Doritos, and it kind of had an epiphany. I'm like, you know, crushed up Doritos kind of looks like lava, right? And, you know, I bet Tim would crack up if I came to his tournament with Doritos glued to my bases because I had to have them based. So, uh, to answer the question, yeah, uh, it takes about seven Doritos to effectively base a flyer. And that you got to crush it up real good, otherwise it just doesn't look right. Uh, and I used the glitter almost glue too, so it's glitterly glitter Doritos. Um, the only problem with the basing is that uh, I, I got them home. You know, I had five of them done up and two of them that were painted. And um, when I wasn't looking, my dog ate two of the basings, so I had to get some GW texture paint on them for ATC. But other than that, uh, they they they're kind of like a running joke now. Is how long can I get these to last and how many people are going to notice that I have Doritos glued to my base? Anyway, guys, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me. <laughs> this guy had Doritos to base his flyers, and then his dog ate them. We can't make this. <laughs> Tournament news. Scary here from Scardcast, and you are listening to Stats Center. From Toronto. Canberra and Kansas, we set sail to Caledonia, specifically Stockport, which based on our research is nowhere near Scotland for the Caledonian Revolution, ETC major event that took place at Element Games. 79 players banged plastic models together over two days to determine who had the right to play Braveheart in the next in a long line of Hollywood reboots. And in the end, only two, two stood tall and undefeated. The one and only... Manny the Bat Chima, and Chris the Tallyman Rainer. Chris would end up going undefeated, but still coming up second with his devoted followers of Nurgle just couldn't eke out the battle points required to pass the Manny Bat. Still, he had a heck of a tournament with a list that generally isn't seen much at events at such a high placing. Did you want to give a go at this list there, Mr. Val, or did you want the pro to do it yet again? Chris Rainer. Chaos Allegiance Nurgle in a battalion detachment of Chaos Demons. He had two Demon Prince of Chaos, uh, a Sloppity Bile Pop Piper, a unit of Nurglings, a unit of 29 Plague Bearers with a dem Demonic Icon and Instrument of Chaos, and then another unit, but this time 28 Plague Bearers with a Demonic Icon and Instrument of Chaos. He had a Spearhead Detachment with a Demon Prince of Nurgle, and three Plague Burst Crawlers. Remember those guys, kids? And then finally he had a Battalion Detachment. Guess what? Chaos Allegiance Nurgle. This guy's going for the gold. He had Epidemius, a Poxbringer, spoil, and a Spoil Pox Scrivener leading them out. And three, count them, three units of Nurglings. Well, look at this little guy running his uh, Durgle, his Durgle, his Nurgle demons up all in this place. This is the kind of list you don't see very often in the top tables. Um, more often than not, it's right at the bottom rungs, these people that want to run their super fluffy, uh, pure Nurgle lists. But Chris made it work. Yeah, you know, uh, sometimes rocking the monofaction can get you places, and this time it was second place. Why don't we uh, kick it on over to him, and he can talk a little bit about it. Hey, uh, the um, the list itself comes from a double tournament that uh, me and uh, my friend went to in Birmingham. Um, it revolves around Epidermis. Um, so at the start, the plate bearers are pretty pretty weak as far as doing damage is concerned. But towards the end of the game, you know, they become not only tough but quite an effective killing machine as well. 
um, in the meantime, you're kind of reliant upon the demon princes and the the death guard units to do the killing. For me, the the MVP of the of the list is um, is the Nurglings. And while the plate bearers are moving forward uh, with the plate bearers crawlers and the demon princes, uh, people are generally focusing on them. Meanwhile, the the Nurglings are uh, racking up the points um, up the back and sometimes even adventuring a little bit further forward or providing screens against smites, etc. Um, yeah, I, I really think that the Nurglings are, are an underestimated unit in the list. You know, I think a couple of weeks back, uh, Alan, PJ Pants, trolled us a little bit by naming his run herd as his MVP, but I think... Our friend Chris here is being genuine. He he thinks those little nerglins want him some games. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised. The, their ability to uh, scout, deploy, and cover up a lot of ground, it's it's really big in a lot of these lists. And um, yeah, I got nothing more to say. Kudos to Chris for putting on such a really awesome performance uh, with a you know a pure Nurgle demon, well, mostly pure Nurgle demon with a little bit of that Death Guard mixed in. It just goes to show, not dying can win you games. Let's hear how uh, Game 5 went for Chris. For me, the the final two games were the, the highlights of the tournament. Um, the Eldar list was was quite a tough matchup in a non-progressive mission. Um, I was quite fortunate that he retreated into a corner, um, so I had map dominance. Um, and yeah, and then I just I did a slow and steady advance in true, true Nurgle style. Um, and then the points just started racking up towards the end. Um, the last game was probably the toughest. Um, with three units of 25 Zangors, um, I just hoped that he'd, he'd send them in one at a time. So I tried to, to pull him in uh, by staying on my backline, not my not on my backline, but in my deployment zone, um, and hoped that by the time he, he came in with the majority of his force that I'd, I'd killed enough stuff for the, the plate bearers to be tough enough to take it. Yep. Big thanks once again to Chris for everything he's done. So now let's turn to the most handsome man from the Glasshammer gaming team, Manny Chima. He's had an absolutely stellar year, putting up wins and top performances with a range of armies, from his Tau victory at the Big Bristol GT to his 5-1 finish at LVO with eight, nine Smash Captains and Death Watch, all, all while wearing a poorly fitted Batman costume. Perfectly fitted. Yeah, to each his own. Uh, Manny has definitely been putting up some solid numbers. Uh, and this time around, Manny brought out his Imperial Guard with just a little splash of Blood Angel Slam Gwyn Eye and his favorite model of all time, Mr. Big Fist. Ah, uh, yes, Mr. Big Fist. We'll get to him at the penultimate detachment of this army. He was rocking a Katachin Brigade detachment lookout. We got C Colonel Iron Hand Strachan, two company commanders. In the elite slot, we've got the underrated and lovable platoon commander with a power fist, Sergeant Harker, a minister and priest, astropath, and then, of course, nine units of just guardsmen and balls. Finally, well, not even close to finally, three scout sentinels with the multi-laser, three heavy weapons teams with the mortars, and then a Katachin battalion detachment with the Emperor's Wrath Artillery Company, I may have uh, skimmed over on the previous one. The uh, Emperor's, sorry, the Brigade was actually an Emperor's Conclave Infantry Company, so we're making a lot of use of Vigilus here. In the uh, Wrath Artillery Company, we've got a Company Commander. We've got a Primaris Psyker. We've got three units of 10 Guardsmen, three Wyverns, 
And then finally, bringing it all up in the rear, we got a Supreme Command Detachment with only good stuff. We got three Smash Captains, one of them rocking the Relic Angels, Angelus Wings, a Librarian Dreadnought, and another Librarian Dreadnought, one of them, only one of them, carrying a comically oversized fist. Uh, I, I've switched. I've switched to the soup, and the reason why I switched to the soup is because I've always loved Horde. I play. I play so many Hordes. Pretty much every year at the ETC, I'm always the Horde player. Uh, I, I just like playing with loads and loads of models. So that's one of the reasons that I haven't gone for the Castellan, and why the Castellan is not in my list, is I don't like having too many big models, and I, I could still get a Horde in with a Castellan, but. I tried in that list to not give people a big target to shoot at. I didn't want one big thing that everybody would put all of their big guns into. So, you know, I'm not too bothered about las cannons and stuff if they're killing three guardsmen. But if a Castellan was my only big threat, it would go bye-bye very quickly. Yeah, quite interesting, actually. This, uh, this list is my ETC list. And I, I wasn't expecting to win the event just because three of the missions have got unlimited kill points in and my list has 35 kill points to give away. So a little bit of luck with the pairings, playing the nine planes in a mission where, well, 11 planes in a mission where there was no kill points really helped and then playing another horde player in the final round helped me as well. So that's cool. And I have explained exactly how the list works. Um, Wivens are there to make people come at me because all of my... All of my big anti-tank and anti-infantry stuff is close range. I have explained everything, the synergy and how it works with all the strats and stuff in a video for elite members only. So if you want to know exactly how the list works completely, like to the full extent, become a member of the elite. Uh, yeah, I know looking at the, the nine broadside list and then this list, all my lists are quite heavily anti-infantry. And uh, it's not that I don't like infantry. I love infantry. I, you know, I use hordes as my main list. So, uh, but yeah, I think it's more, um, I like to put loads and loads of anti-infantry in. Uh, but the reason why I've switched from the broadsides over to the Catachans is I like to put anti-infantry, that's also infantry itself, because it gives me a mass of board presence so I can hold objectives very well. But then I can kill loads of little stuff off people's off objectives as well. But then if big stuff tries to come close to my little stuff, then I have the five Blood Angel, you know, the best of the Blood Angels sent by the Emperor himself uh, that I can just seem to roll unlimited sixes for when I need them. <laughs> I would say probably the thing that's unique about my list is if you look at most lists that are dominating, well, at least the UK meta at the moment all the lists that are dominating there are either like chaos hordes with smite spam that operate really well in the psychic phase or like lists which operate really well in the combat phase or you know you can have nine flyers which operate really well in the shooting phase but people know what phases exactly those lists are good at and i think the unique thing the most unique thing about my list is it has a big impact in the game in a lot of phases uh moving around move, move moving around with 120 dudes is powerful casting wings and making dreadnoughts fly and stuff and double moving is really powerful with and shooting and also like 400 odd lasgun shots is really powerful and my combat is awesome with smash captains and loads of guardsmen with three attacks each of strength four so my MVP unit 
has got to be Mr. Big Fist. <laughs> uh, Mr. Big Fist is my warlord Libby Dread, uh, but he quite famously has a Imperial Knight Fist instead of his Furioso Fist, just because he looks cool <laughs> and uh, he punches people a lot, man. Uh, the minus 4 AP with the flat 4 damage is really, really good on him, especially with the reach he has with Wings of Sanguinius and with Quickening. And I think it's called Red Rampage, whichever one gives him plus D3 attack stratagem. Uh, he puts the pain on a lot of people and he was really good over the weekend. Made, made a lot of people play differently. Uh, but also there was a Wyvern in my game with Mark Cromblehome and my my rolling is normally very lucky. Jammy Manny is like what most people call me. And that Wyvern got 24 shots. 24 hits on 4s, and 24 wounds, wounding on 5s with re-rolls against Grotesques. Jammy Manny, baby. <laughs> you should have seen it. Mark's face after that was just amazing. Uh, his only response was, he just looked at me with a black face and was like, Manny, stop rolling my dice. Don't use my dice anymore. <laughs> Now, Mark Cromwellholm, as you may remember, won the Warzone Man GT not but two weeks ago, so Manny had definitely been up against some tough players as he made his way through the revolution, and his final match was against Tom, always on top, Higginbottom. You can thank Peter for that one. That was pretty good. Tom was a player fresh off a win at the Allies of Convenience GT just two weeks ago and has been absolutely tearing up the UK scene with his style of wah. Orcs and Katachin Guard have some absolutely knockdown, drag-out matchups, and this was no different. Uh, my final game was, it was a really good one. Uh, I played Tom Higginbottom, who's absolutely smashing it with Orcs in the UK at the moment. Uh, he's a really, really good player, and we've had loads of games. We play practice games with each other, and we always have a, a really close, good game. Um, I think... Uh, I think he played the Orcs a little differently to how I would have in that matchup because it was kill points. It kind of favoured him a little bit. I would have sat back with looters and had a sort of standoff and just killed a few more guard units than I could Orc units because either one of us only needed like a 12-8 or 13-7 win to win the event. Uh, but he went really aggressive and he just ran at me. But in one turn, he failed two charges, like both charges with deep strikes and stuff. So it was really bad because there were 70 boys just sitting in front of me and I wiped them all out in one turn with like 400 lasgun shots on the combat. And then uh, Tom just couldn't come back from that. So he had to concede in turn four. Uh, but yeah, if played differently, it would have been really close. That wraps up our coverage on the Caledonian Revolution. Grats, Manny. We hear you moving on to chaos next. I hope those fickle gods do not find you wanting. Tournament news. I'm Lawrence Baker. And this is the B-Bone from Tabletop Tactics. You're listening to 40K Stat Center. So finally, we move from a land where one revolution just ended to the land where one got its start. Richmond, Virginia, home of Patrick Henry, he of Give Me Liberty or Give Me Death, and the fifth and last major event that took place this weekend, the Battle in the Warp First Crusade. Hosted by the absolutely effervescent Warp Charged Gaming Group and Coastal Wargaming, Battle in the Warp was a 61-player major and Nova practice event held at the Battlegrounds. We were able to reach out to the Warp Charge gaming crew, and they were more than happy to provide a thorough rundown of the event, as well as hundreds of pictures, a music video, and a Hallmark TV movie starring Tori Spelling as Gazgul Thraka. We'll link the pictures and videos to the 40k Stats Center Facebook page, but we've had to return the footage of Gaz finding out his true love was the local flower shop owner all this time. Here's what their crew had to say. 
What's up, 40K Stats fans? This is George from Warp Charge Gaming. I'm here to give you a quick breakdown of the event that we threw this past weekend on July 20th and 21st. It was called the Battle in the Warp First Crusade, hosted by Warp Charge Gaming and Coastal War Gaming. Uh, Warp Charge Gaming, we're an online entertainment media company based around tabletop wargaming featuring Age of Sigmar, 40K, and Kill Team. And we do tournaments every month for all three of these game systems and stream them live. We are based out of the game store Battlegrounds in Midlothian VA where we host all of our events. This event that Coastal Wargaming and Warp Charge put together this past weekend was a milestone event for us as it was our first 40k major tournament having 58 plus people over five rounds. It was a two-day event where we had people from all over the East Coast and and more come to our event. We had friends from Chicago, had a buddy visiting from New Zealand that made it out, and we had people all the way from Pennsylvania down to North Carolina. This event was in preparation for the 10th year anniversary of Nova Open 2019, and we were using their format. Due to the timeline of the Chaos Knight Codex dropping, we did not allow that at our event, pulled per our event attendees. At the event, 100% of the entry fees went into the prize support. We gave out over $3,000 in prizes, in-store credit for Battlegrounds, and uh, every attendee got a set of six custom objective markers. Coastal Wargaming brought 32 tables of terrain, the exact same terrain they've been volunteered for at Nova Open. They wanted to expand the number of players that they could accommodate as it sold out faster than it ever has before in record numbers this year. And Coastal Wargaming, with their, with their excellent ITC terrain that matches the mats, uh, will be providing that for Nova Open. So we actually got to play on the terrain that will be at the event of the big major itself. So it was a great primer for our attendees. We did first, second, and then not to be doubled up with best in faction for Imperium, Chaos, and Xenos. That was kind of your top five picks there. We also did every 16 players would be a top 16. So we did 17th, 33rd, and 49th out of the 64 player capacity, as well as best painted and rule of cool. We had some fantastic armies there, some amazing talented players, as well as people that were just getting their feet wet and diving into the tournament scene. Warp Charge Gaming and Coastal War Gaming are two different crews from a couple hours away that really share the same values of taking fun seriously, the motto of Warp Charge, and uh, we really have made friends over this past year as we've both thrown some excellent events as time's gone on. This was the kickoff to our season two of our tournament league. We just did season one for the first half of the year, had six tournaments with the top three scores of those six tournaments going to an overall grand prize, uh, which we actually gave away a painting commission voucher to Dark Money Creatives this past round. Uh, we kicked off season two with this big major event that we were extremely proud of. If you guys want to go check out on Twitch or YouTube, you can catch the each of the five rounds we put up the top table on the uh, stream there, and you're able to watch all the battles back and including the last two rounds, which are where the most intense of the competition lied uh, for these top spots. First place walked away with practically a new army of $600 in prize support, $400 for second. Each of the best in factions got $250. Uh, so I know there was a lot of stoked winners. We also gave away $100 giveaways throughout the entire event. So it was extremely classy, top notch. Uh, we, you know, we put our all into it and uh, really had a memorable experience that I think will go down in our history on a local level. We plan to continue to expand and grow these events and want to be a major player in the community 
community as far as pushing us forward and reaching uh, newer and higher bars of what is a great tournament. If you're ever in the East Coast area or see the Warp Charge Gaming Coastal Wargaming name on an event, know that uh, we take a lot of pride in providing the best experience possible and we'll make no exception to making sure that our attendees have a fantastic time. So I hope you guys enjoy the stats and you check out some of the videos of the bat reps. Love to hear from you. Holler with any additional questions you might have. Follow us on Best Coast Pairing to continue to see more great uh, stats being posted from our events in the months to come. Keep taking fun seriously. Battle in the Warp had a spicy field with eight of the 61 players representing the greater good, three of which ended up in the top four. The final matchup would see a Tau mirror match with Michael Egner going up against Chris Stover, the man that stopped Austin Wingfield in his tracks in the first round of the event. I'll do one, you do the other. Here we go. Mike Agner, this is the eventual winner. We've got a battalion detachment of Tau Sept. Uh, it was rocking a commander in a enforcer battle suit with my favorite four cyclic, cyclic ion blasters, Dark Strider. He had three units of five fire warriors. He had three units of shield drones with two marker drones in each unit as well. He had a heavy support broadside battle suits unit with three of them, of course, rocking the high yield missile pods and advanced targeting system and bringing along five of their shield drone buddies. Then he had a Vanguard detachment of the Sasea Sept with an ethereal on a hover drone, three firesight mar and three firesight marksmen. Finally, we had a Vanguard detachment of the Tau Sept with another three cyclic ion blaster enforcer battle suit with a drone controller which can only mean one thing and i'm wrong because it's not sniper drones <laughs> it means three elites of the riptide persuasion two smart smart missile systems advanced targeting system and target lock so these are the mobile guys they can move they can shoot uh they're pretty fun for sure and in third place the his opponent Chris Stover, who ran a Taucep Brigade with a Cadre Fireblade, uh, tagging on two extra shield drones, a Cold Star Commander with three fusion blasters, a shield generator, and two shield drones, and Dark Strider. He also had six minimum fi five-man Fire Warrior squads, two Firesight Marksmen, and a Riptide with Heavy Burst Cannon and Velocity Tracker, as well as advanced targeting system he had three units of four shield drones two units of three sniper drones three broadsides with high yield missile pods smart missiles and advanced targeting systems and then he had a dalith taus uh, battalion what i know uh in which he ran a cadre fireblade another cold star once again with a uh, triple fusion blasters and a shield generator he had another three minimum uh, five-man Fire Warrior squads, and a Sassiacept patrol with a Cadre Fireblade, a third Cold Star commander with Fusion Blasters, an Ethereal, and a Firesight Marksman. I believe there's a mistake here, and that that patrol is probably actually a Supreme Command attachment when I look at it. Well, there you go. Cue them up. Let's, uh, let's get the torches and pitchforks. We got a, we got a little list error. What are we going to do about it? Uh, is it, though? Yeah, you're right. It's got the elite. I don't know. We better slander this person's otherwise good name everywhere we can find for a very minor 
uh, miscalculation in their list. Uh, particularly given that um, if he did play it this way, it actually hurt him because it left him with one less CP for no reason. For no reasons. It took us a while, but we were eventually able to reach Michael after a long trek through forgotten parts of the internet. Multiple contacts with players in his area. It involved digging through a series of pseudonyms, several dead ends and false flags, and the first 14 pages of the now-trending page on Pornhub. Michael was kind enough to give us a brief rundown of his thoughts on the event. If you're looking for something a little more thorough, we do recommend you check out Next Rung Gaming on YouTube, because Michael did do a a pretty extensive interview on uh, the event itself and on uh, all his games that took place. Uh, One thing Michael uh, wanted to say was that the event was great. It was his first time uh, going to one of the Warp Charge gaming tournaments, but he felt that the venue had plenty of space and that the terrain was awesome. Um, When you look at the pictures later, you'll be able to see like it, it really is a fantastic venue by the looks of things. His MVPs were his drones. Um, they always screened very well for him, and his savior protocols were clutch. Um, if they happened to survive to the late game, they were uh, excellent for holding objectives. And uh, his toughest matchup was definitely his round four against Ted Cantu. Three big things helped him uh, that game, which were, A, he uh, Ted decided that the Tau player should go first. And uh, turn one, he did not. He forgot to advance a unit of shining spears, so it was able to. He was able to outrange them with a riptide, and uh, that actually caused him to basically pull ahead in the game. And he finalized it in the last round when one of his commanders decided to roll hot and not die uh, when uh, Ted's uh, rangers uh, came a hunting. And that's it. That's all he really had to say. Unfortunately, because it took us a little while to uh, find Michael, we weren't able to get a really good um, audio from him. Like I said, feel free to check out the podcast and you'll uh, get a a good, clear idea of just how we played through those games. And that's all we've got. So let's get another bump. And I've run out of new bumps. Tournament news. Hey guys, this is Nick Nanavati from Knights of the Game Table Pro, where I teach you how to become a better 40k player. And you're listening to 40K Stat Center. Oh, thank goodness. We finished the majors. I guess the show's over. Yeah, and there's nothing else to say here. Oh, wait, there's still three GTs. From major play to GT-sized events, we travel back across the pond for the Summer Hull GT, a 36-player ITC event hosted by the Hull's Angels, and the second in a trio of GTs planned for the area this year. What was most impressive about the Summer Hull GT was that, once again, a pure Grey Knights list actually made it to the top table, though it did not win. It is always a pleasure to see some of the more maligned codexes have their day. While we could not reach Karen in time to talk about their lists, we were able to reach out to the eventual winner of the event, Ben Tilford, for some insight on how the event went down. Um, my name's uh, Ben Tilford. I'm actually Canadian, but I've lived in the UK forever. I, uh, I play everyone's favorites, Tau, Eldar, and Dark Eldar been playing again for about two years, a year competitively, a bit longer maybe. I used to play as a kid on and off through to my twenties, but I quit when I went to uni. Um, Hull GTs are, are the best. 
the terrains are great with the right mix of line of sight blocking and scatter stuff. And after hard days battling, it's off to spiders for a few dirty tizers. James and Mark are really well organised. I can't actually recall any delays aside from myself turning up late more than once. All the whole boys are super friendly and they definitely have the right balance between competitive and social play at their tourneys. And there's no real secret to my list. Basically, if you nuke the grots, the rest will nuke you. If you wreck the Ravagers and the Crimson Hunters, the Grots will get there and batter you. My MVP was definitely the Hemo with the Helm of Spite. I just waited for like low rolls on Psychic Test, denied and got some free mortals. Even uh, in my second game, I uh, stopped a Jinx and killed a Warlock, which was hilarious. So now Ben did have a couple of hard matchups prior to the finals, going up against some sticky chaos multi-faction shenanigans that almost took him down before facing off against the Brothers of Titan. Let's hear what he has to say about his day two matchups. Um, the second day games four and five were tough, but that was self-inflicted after one too many beers the night before. My uh, my toughest game was versus uh, Greg in his chaos list. After turn two, I only had a single unit of Grotz left, and they were about to get Death Hexed for a third time, but he actually failed it, uh, and he burnt through all his CPs. He was basically giving me the, the brick I needed to push forward hard. I still had the three Ravagers and two Crimson Hunters that he basically just couldn't touch, so I used them to whittle down the Screamers and the Cultists. Um, Then the remaining grots battered the remaining plague bearers, so I just played the objectives and, and, and my secondaries. The funniest part of that game was uh, charging Urian into a demon prince to stop Greg charging my racks on the center objective. Urian tanked it, but then the prince jumped over, rolled a super smite, and wiped the racks anyways in his turn. My last game versus Kyrian's uh, Grey Knights. It was a good game, but I was really hanging at this point. Um, he gave me first turn, which basically just let me deal with the dreads, because they were the biggest threats to my flyers. As expected, he put most of his stuff in reserve, or hid it, out of line of sight. So I just pushed up to the centre of the board, and screened out my shooty stuff from the, uh, the incoming Grandmaster Dread Knights, and all their support. After they dropped in, I brought in my third unit of grots that I put in uh, reserve to charge and slow down his dread knights, but they failed the charge. I didn't pass a single charge from deep striking grots for the two days. Um, the Grandmasters then charged the grots in his fight phase and bounced off them, uh, thanks to the, the four up in one. On the grots and the six up ignore wounds. This then let me charge in the remaining of my uh, grots with urine hiding the building and uh, his buff plus one strength lets me wound the grandmasters on fours and grots just have a ridiculous amount of attacks so uh, it didn't really take long to to start bringing them down. The game ended up with, uh, with a tabling but I think a Kyrian had brought a, uh, brought anything but Grey Knights, it would have been a bit more of a game. All in all, 
the weekend was was cool. I really enjoyed it. This was my uh, my first GT win, so I was obviously over the moon about that, and uh, can't wait for my next tourney. Thanks, Ben. Hopefully, the light of life finds your eyes and you find joy once again. Let's get another bump. Tournament news. Hey, big nasty D and RoboEd from Life of the Cover Save Comedy Games podcast. And you're listening to 40K Stat Center. It's kind of cool, I guess. Warhammer, the final frontier. These are the voyages of the HMS Stat Center, whose mission is to seek out new events to bring you their players and boldly go where no podcast had gone before. And this time it's Alaska. Sure, there are podcasts out there, but they're mostly just a bunch of white guys yelling at clouds and drinking four loco. And even though we do listen to the Mob Rules podcast religiously because they're good chaps, it does say something about them that they thought Falcon was my actual real name. But enough about them. We're here to talk up the Midnight Sun GT, a 32-player event held in Palmer, Alaska, a place so cold and covered in smoke that it reminds the Falcon a little too much of home. We reached out to Rob Porter about the event. Hey guys, this is Rob Porter reporting back from the Midnight Sun GT, taking first place with Pure Admech. How was the event itself? What was the table and terrain quality like? And the venue. Um, I'm going to be a little biased because I did help with the event organizing, but was not involved with the TOing or any of the official rulings. But um, the tables were dispersed pretty well inside of the venue. There was plenty of room to walk around, set your army down. Terrain was evenly dispersed. There was plenty of ruins and craters and barricades across the tables. So that being said, it worked out really well. The uh, venue had applicable parking, bathrooms, and space to move, though it was a little inconvenient because it did get pretty hot in there, but Alaska's going through a heat wave, so that was not avoidable. All the big Alaskan 40K personalities were in attendance, like the aforementioned Rob Porter, Danny McDevitt, and a small bird with psoriasis. The event would go down as a big one for Rob as he managed to pull off a very solid victory with a pure cult mechanicus army. As he managed to pull off a very solid victory with a monofaction cult mechanicus army. Do you want to say all the dumb words in this one? Rob Porter. He brought with him a cult mechanicus battalion that was Mars with a, server, a servitor maniple uh, vigilist detachment. He had Belisarius Call, a tech priest engine seer, three units of five cataphron breachers with arc rifles and hydraulic claws, a squad of ten corpuscari electro priests, two onager dune crawlers with Icarus arrays, a Terax pattern assault drill, and then a second Mars battalion, this time with a tech priest manipulus, another engine seer, three units of seven Skatari rangers uh, with two transuranic arquebuses in each, a squad of nine Sakaran infiltrators, and three of those fantastic brand new state-of-the-art Scorpius disintegrators. Ooh, baby. Let's see what Rob had to say about those. Key strategies of my list is really um, investing in the durability of the Adeptus Mechanicus toppled by um, the rerolls from Call and the synergy with the Manipulus and a lot of their stratagems to create a uh, screen 
uh, with breachers that it's, it's really tough for a lot of people to break through. So in using that buffer to allow the rest of the gun line that's mobile to shift around across my side of the, of the board to get in uh, good positions for firing and, and, and just completely capitalize on it while throwing units like the Corpus Cari and the infiltrators either mid board or on the backside of the enemy's deployment zone to keep pressure on to where it's hard to prioritize where the firepower needs to be and allowing me to spread across and go for mid board. My list MVP and how did they make a difference for you? Really, like on a match-by-match basis, each game had its own MVP unit. So I wouldn't say that there was one unit in particular that was just the overarching best unit. Um, That being said, I think the Scorpiuses were the most reliable out of all my games. But there were a few games where like the Infiltrators really swung it for me. The Corpus Gari really swung it for me. The Breachers held their own really well. Um, the onagers were knocking out flyers. I mean, it, it's kind of a case by case basis. Everything synergized really well. And that's kind of what to expect from a call list. It's just a call star that walks around and shoots at everything. But the, the Scorpius is, I think really shine the most T- to me. They did. They're just a, uh, a new, a new dynamic to the whole function of that. That is Mechanicum round four match with triple crash crusader, uh, played by our local Matt Morse was a very interesting game. That mission was, I believe, mission number six, where it's the I go, you go for deployment and going first. So I got to deploy first. I deployed superly aggressive, and uh, he seized on me. So I was essentially looking at the table going, well, hell, I guess I'm just going to die. I'll hang on tight then. Oddly enough, he hit with a lot of shots. He didn't wound with as many of them. I was able to make a lot of saves. I only lost like five breachers and was able to retaliate. And by the bottom of turn two, uh, two knights were off the board. So um, I think that game was more or less a matter of him having a hard time with target priority and where to focus his knights on and me just able to just pressure on with mortal wounds. I will make a mention here that the infiltrator showing up did 14 wounds to the knight. So that was huge. Final match against Colson and his Necrons was a good game. Um, it was a hard-fought one. The terrain and everything was fine on the table. We deployed up by a vanguard. This mission was precious cargo. We did the usual. I'm going to move my objective back to my corner, and then he went first. Fortunately for me, I'm used to playing against this kind of list. I've had some practice games with another local player, Danny McDevitt, who's from uh, the Mob Rules podcast, and I know what he was trying to do with getting the mortal wounds off and all the Tesla. So I, I fanned out as best as I could and only gave him like one good target for his strat to go off, which he did use and killed about three or four breachers. But then when I retaliated, um, I shot down all of his flyers. The biggest thing about this game that really hurt him the most was that his uh, Doomsday Arcs just did not perform. They did not hit. And then when I started putting the Corpus Gari in and the Infiltrators in and started just popping off mortal wound bombs like crazy, it just that really turned the game for him about turn three. Well played, Rob. Keep up the great work in the name of the Omnissiah. Let's cut to the bomb. Tournament News. Hey everybody, I'm Paul Murphy from Forge the Narrative, and you're listening to 40K Stat Center. And here we have it, the finale of the 400 events that we had to cover this week. The Central Valley Showdown was a 31-player ITC event run at the actual gates of hell themselves in Hanford, California. Run by the Warhammered 40K team and TO'd by fighter jet pilot Paul Bowman, Central Valley was a real mix of Northern California sharks and baby seals ready to be clubbed into oblivion. 
That's pretty graphic. Players like our very own Michael the Glock Tempe, Tony Hammerhead Myers, and Jessica No Battle Cannon Needed Bowman brought even more heat to a 110-degree weekend. I'm sweating just thinking about it. And no, Aurelio, no one forgot to include their Vigilist attachment in their list, so calm yourself and have a Long Island iced tea or something. It is the drink of champions. In what may come as a surprise, two of the top four players at the event, including the eventual winner, ran Necrons. 40K Stats Center correspondent Michael Tempe came in fourth place, being outclassed and outgunned by a man who refers to himself as the guppy of the NorCal scene, Euless Adam Sanders. So, Euless Sanders uh, showed up to the Central Valley Showdown with an airwing detachment, Sotek, three Doomsize, an Outrider detachment of Sotek with a Cryptek, uh, a unit of six destroyers, five uh, regular variety and one heavy, a squad of one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, uh, 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 tomb blades, and then another squad of one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, uh, 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 tomb blades. And finally, he had a spearhead detachment, also Sotek with Emotech the Stormlord and three Doomsday Arcs. Uh, this is a list that we're seeing more and more regularly show up in the uh, top echelons of a 40k tournament scene. Necrons have really been exploding out of the gates. Um, unfortunately, um, they seem to all be running this almost exact template uh, with just a few points moved here and there. So I'm not sure how long it, this will last before people finally figure out what to do against them. Um, I'm interested to see it because I love the fact that a faction that for so long had been kind of pushed to the wayside as one of the worst yeah. has started a rise to being one of the best. And I'm just happy that people are as dedicated to their faction as you were to that terrible count joke. Now, Euless wanted to not only talk about his list performance, but also Necrons as a whole in the current meta. Let's hear what he had to say. I think when people think of Necrons, they still think of Necrons in November 2018. Uh, we've come a long way since then, and some of our toughest matchups, uh, specifically the Castellan and Yanari Dark Reapers, they've taken a hit. And in their absence, we've grown stronger. I also think the Necron community is one of the better ones out there, so good ideas spread quickly. We benefit from having very few hard counters. And those that do, we play very strong in the first turn and long tables. So even if we're outclassed, or outskilled. We've seen the meta shift a lot in the last six months, but most have been in our favor. Tesla is a great answer to bodies. When you have a weapon that has an average hit ratio of 100%, add plus one to it, and you're talking about 150%. Against high body count armies, it's going to stack up pretty quickly. And our Doomsday Arcs, they hit both big targets and small targets alike. You add that with the Doomside stratagem that really punishes castle armies. And in Destroyers with Exterminating Protocols, one of the better strats in the game for 1 CP, rerolling all hits, all wounds against any target for that unit, they can really dish out the damage turn 1. Our weaknesses are probably Enclosed Ruins and models with a 2-up and 3-up and Vulnerable, because our ability to efficiently put out mortal wounds is pretty much blown after the first turn. It's hard not to give the MVP to the Destroyers, but it's probably not for the reasons people suspect. It's not so much in the damage they did, but in the damage they took. Most people forget that destroyers are an infantry model, and with the ability to redeploy them with Veil of Darkness, 
You can look for those points on the board that potentially give him cover save while still being efficient offensively. And in doing that, you're now looking at a T5 model with three wounds with a two-up save. It's going to take some shots to clear that unit. And when you have a fear tactic like the Doomsize Stratagem, which unfortunately I only got to use twice in this tournament, and the first time I only did a whole two wounds, they still provide a great distraction for the destroyers. So in that, you can't necessarily put all your shots into one basket. And if you don't kill destroyers down to the last model, they're coming back next turn. My most difficult matchup was definitely my game three on day one. I was getting some Martarion lists with a couple of Leviathans, a Daredeo, a couple of Plaguebridge Crawlers, and Demon Prince, and some Death Drop Terminators for Martarion. Uh, I was lucky enough to go first, but unfortunately the Doomsight Stratagem did all of two wounds. And the Doomsday Arcs, who have 3d6 shots, they got four shots. And so I only did four damage to Martarion. So it definitely had me on my back foot on turn one. But I was able to spread the board and we started, you know, luck started to average out. And it started being a real back and forth battle. At times it looked like he was ahead and at times it looked like I was ahead. And it came down to that very last turn. And I was able to get the last kill on the Playbridge Crawler to go ahead. And he was able to get into position to take out my arc to tie it back up at the very end of the game. So it was a great game. Um, that was definitely my most difficult match of the tournament. Congratulations, Julius. I hope your head doesn't get too big for that little fish tank you play in in Northern California now that you're one of the big koi in that pond. Now there's one last player we want to talk about that attended the Central Valley Showdown. That's right, ladies and gentlemen, we don't have a fancy bumper yet, and we wouldn't want to waste it on this guy. It's our overachieving underachiever of the week, Anthony DeMore. Ah, you're so amazing, kinda. So, big deal about Anthony here is that he loves to run his Death Watch with no veterans, no Storm Shields, and no allies whatsoever. And does he have any problems? Absolutely not. So Anthony DeMore came in fifth place at the Central Valley Showdown. He brought a Death Watch Battalion with that operative requisition-sanctioned uh, 85 points left aside. His HQs were a Watch Captain with a Jump Pack, Storm Shield, and Thunderhammer, and a Watchmaster. He then had a squad, uh, uh, a veteran intercessor squad with five intercessors and five hellblasters, a second veteran intercessor squad with five intercessors and five hellblasters, and then a third intercessor squad with one, two, three aggressors and two inceptors with assault bolters, as well as five intercessors, and then another intercessor squad with three aggressors, two inceptors, and five intercessors, and finally rounded it all out. He had a Reaver squad, Reavers. something I have never seen in my entire life. He has a five-man Reaver squad to top out the two Xiphon Interceptors that make up the Flyers in his list. What is this man doing? Smoking crack. Let's cut to some clips. So I play pure faction Death Watch because I've always liked them as an army. Um, I've had them since they were one of those shitty little uh, metallic, uh, what is it, the pewter kits that Games Workshop sold where it was 10 shoulder pads and 10 unique looking bolters and 10 unique uh, looking helmets. 
Um, I ran them as Sternguard for a while before I learned about uh, competitive Warhammer and uh, kind of dropped them after that and, you know, played a whole bunch of other stuff. But uh, now it's really just a labor of love because I love the army. Um, when they came out with the Codex in 2017, I was absolutely floored and loved every aspect of it and was super excited to get it to work competitively. And I've been doing my best ever since. The components to my list are really, I mean, it's only eight units, nine units. So the list is really about getting the most out of every single piece of the list that I possibly can. Every unit has to do multiple things fairly well in order for me to do well in a competitive environment. Um, the big strategy, I mean, in 10 out of 10 games that I play, I uh, deep strike the two units of Intercessors and Hellblasters because they give me that long-range anti-tank firepower um, that the Xiphon Interceptors can't really do. Um, they're really solid. I'm a huge fan of the native minus one on the bolters, and then you tack on the fact that they can wound on twos against everything that's not a super heavy or a vehicle, and, I mean, we're in business. They, uh, they definitely pull their weight. Strategy, though, against heavy armor um, revolves around the Xiphon Interceptors and the Smash Captain that I have in the list, because the Smash Captain carries uh, the Tome of Ectocleides, which is a uh, six-inch bubble of any mission tactic that uh, that I want in addition to the mission tactic that's already active. Uh, the key difference there is that normally mission tactics only applies to infantry, bikers, and dreadnoughts, but the six-inch bubble from the tome allows me to give it to any Death Watch unit, and the Smash Captain is the only unit in my army that's actually fast enough to keep up with the Xiphon Interceptors for one to two turns while I take out the big pieces. Uh, generally speaking, either by the end of turn three, either both planes are dead or everything that the planes should kill is dead. Round five was against some guy, um, I think I've seen him a couple of times before, I think his name was Paul. He seemed pretty full of himself. He, uh, he was running, um, some super snowflakey Tau with, uh, uh, Sept and, uh, uh, a Riptide, a Burst Tide, uh, and then he had three individual units of, um, oh, what are they called? The, uh, the Hazard Suits with the Fusion Cascades. And then he had uh, two Ion Commanders and a YOLO Commander with Fusions. And that was, uh, that was a pretty tough game, but um, I, I did end up pulling that one out. It was kind of a blur. He was talking about this Best Coast Pairings app the whole time. It was super, super weird. He wouldn't, like... I think he was more focused on, like, talking to me about why Best Coast Pairings was the best as opposed to focusing on our game. So I'm pretty sure that's just about the only reason I won, because he just wasn't paying attention. There you have it, folks. Anthony Demore's crack smoking four and one death watch list. What a guy. What a champion. And the fact that he smack talked Paul McKelvey, the champion of best coast pairings. Uh, you know, he went four and one. Um, and you'd think that someone had done that, you know, would have uh, shown a little bit more class. I mean, uh, to rag on, on Paul McKelvey after everything he's done for the hobby and, and for competitive Warhammer, I, I would have liked, I would have liked to see him, uh, I don't know. I, I I thought we were gonna give this guy an award for doing something cool, and then he uh, I don't know, he kind of brings our podcast into ill repute. And I want to thank everyone who's made it this far into the show. It's much longer than we normally would have intended. Um, 
and also I think probably there's there's a few of you out there who maybe are considering you know whether or not this is even an appropriate thing to do at a time like this. We've got a lot of friends out there who are who are hurting. Us as a community, we've we've lost uh, a really great leader and a great voice. And I think one thing I might try and suggest is is that it's at times like these that we gotta lean on each other and try and bring each other up. And even though something very serious has happened and there is a great void in a lot of people who we care about's lives right now, it's times like this where we wanna try and focus on levity, good memories, good times. And at all of these events that we talked about this week, new memories and new good times were formed. And that's exactly the type of thing that's going to get us through this. So we dedicate this podcast to Jeff and to everyone out there who's hurting, whether or not you knew him personally or not. Goodbye, Jeff. Um, May the emperor watch over everything you do. This has been 40K Stat Center, a presentation of the Frontline Gaming Podcast Network. Like what we do? Subscribe to and rate us on YouTube and wherever podcasts can be found. Join the conversation. Follow 40K Stat Center on Facebook. You can also support the show directly by joining the Chapter Tactics Patreon and competitive 40K in general via the ITC Patreon or by grabbing a subscription to BCP.